history with the podcast guy, Matt King. Hey everybody, thank you for listening to our podcast. Unfortunately, for some, our topics that we talk about may be offensive to some people. The topics that we discuss could also be triggers, and we want you to be aware of that. If you are in need of help, please talk to a professional, a family member, or a friend. We are not medical professionals, and we don't claim to be. We are just two guys with a microphone and a platform. Please listen with discretion. Welcome to This Time in History, guys. I'm Matthew. Unfortunately, my co-host is not here today, but it's okay because we've got a great interview uh, for you guys to listen to. But let's get with the history of the week first. In 1923, President Warren G. Harding becomes the first U.S. president to file an income tax report. In 1964, a Dallas jury finds Jack Ruby guilty of the murder of assassin Lee Harvey Oswald. And in 1970, the U.S. Postal Service is paralyzed by the first postal strike. In 1991, four L.A. police officers are charged in the beating of Rodney King. And happy birthdays this week go out to Stephen Curry, Michael Caine, Billy Crystal, Victor Garber, Eva Longoria, Brett Michaels, Lauren Graham, Joel Embiid, Blake Griffin, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Samoa Joe, AJ Lee, Queen Latifah, Dane Cook, and Bruce Willis. Okay, so today we have an interview with CS Phoenix, and I hope you guys enjoy it. So here it is. Welcome back to the podcast, guys. We're going to do an interview today, and with me is the creator of the Common Humanity podcast. Her name's CS Phoenix. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So this is where I ask you about your story. It is your story, your floor. Go ahead. Oh man, where to start? Um, I might inter- well, I'll start. I might interrupt you if I have a question, but other than that, that is literally what I was just gonna say. If you want more details, ask. So usually when I tell my story, I try to give like the most palatable version first, um, and then kind of do more of a deep dive. So I have lived a very vivid life full of various traumas um and i would like to say like if i told the story of one i would not be able to not tell the story of the other because they all kind of are intertwined and there have been kind of a domino effect so i would say it started when i was four um and i was so I was raised in a at an emotionally and psychologically and sometimes like um when I say physically abusive there are people who had it a lot worse than me but there are definitely you know it's hard to not remember times that your your body was handled by somebody else um and in general, that was my household growing up. Um, not a big fan of my father, <laughs> but 
part of that, and it's one of those chicken and egg scenarios, is that I don't know if I became, like, victimized by other people because I, like, they could tell that I was already kind of worn down from my home life, or if victimization from, like, the neighbor kids made it easier for my dad to victimize me at home. Those are things that I'll never know. Um, but kind of along the same timeline, from about the age of, the age of four to about ten, I was molested by three different people. Um, and the hardest part about that was that I had no one to help me with it. It was something that I handled alone. And starting at four years old, that was a very difficult thing to do. So I became a very standoffish person. <laughs> so I was, I was not thrilled to be around others. And by the time like late elementary rolled around, I was very aggressive. I was very depressed. I was like a full blown insomniac. Um, my anxiety was off the charts. I was, like, in fifth grade, I started self-harming in whatever way possible. Um, I attempted suicide for the first time in sixth grade, and then two more times between seventh and ninth grade. Um, literally only only saved because I had one friend who could, like, who noticed that something was off and stopped me, um, which I'm grateful for 100% to this day. And that is kind of the beginning of the story. <laughs> so I, there was like, I mean, life, life was a struggle. I am Anyone who knows me and would, like, look back at me in, like, high school, I was, you know, I was an A student. Like, I was on the honor roll. Um, I was in all AP classes. I played all the sports. I played multiple instruments. I was in all the clubs. Um, I did community service. I had a job. Like, I was just full-on running my life. And it looked like high achieving. I mean, it, I guess it was high achieving. Um, but because of that, I was often overlooked because I had, like, I had my shit together. I should have asked beforehand if I'm allowed to swear on here. <laughs> yeah, let it fly. Okay, perfect, because I can swear like a sailor sometimes. <laughs> um, and I, like, I spent... A good, I mean, I just spent most of my time trying, like, just trying to achieve everything. And part of that was, you know, the standard trying to get my parents' attention and, like, try to win their love, things like that. Um, but the other side of it was anytime I slowed down, 
like my mental state got very bad. And so it was a coping mechanism that I developed very early on was that if I just keep going, um, I always used to refer to myself as an energizer bunny because you just keep going. You just keep going. (laughs) And yeah, so I mostly stayed out of relationships. Um, I dated two guys in high school. One was my best friend. We held hands and then like it started getting serious as serious as you can be in like 10th grade. But, um, like all of our friends were like losing their virginity and starting to like do things like that. And he was just like, are we ever going to do that? And I was like, Nope. And just like cut him off. I was like, never doing this again. I don't want anybody near me like back the fuck off. And for, this poor guy who's 16 years old, like he has no idea why this is happening because I didn't tell him because at this point in my life, like I didn't, like I knew, but I didn't really know. Um, I had, like I had memories of the things that had happened, but I didn't have any attachment to them. And yeah, so that's how I kind of lived my life. Um, didn't date anyone through college. Um, and then, oh, I was just going to skip over all of that. Man, my brain was just like, la, la, la. <laughs> um, so it's not that I didn't try to date people. Like, I had interests. Um, but college rolled around, and, like, I don't know, there was a a greater expectation of being sexually active than there was when I was younger. I mean, when I was younger, there was still that expectation. But, like, in college, that's just what everybody's doing. And so um, it was very much expected of me. And I was still substantially uncomfortable with anybody being near me, which didn't stop people from doing it I like I always tell people that because so I was in the I was in Greek life so I was in a sorority um and I had a bunch of friends and fraternities and they oftentimes get a bad rap now mind you I was in Montana so like our Greek life was really small. It wasn't like if you're in the South and you have like hundreds of people living in one house, because that just sounds terrifying. Um, But I always tell the story of like the first guy I ever made out with at college um, was some drunken fat boy. And people are always like, oh, this is where the story gets really good. And I'm just like, yeah, it is where the story gets good. He's literally the first person in my life who I was just like, yeah, no, we're not going there. And he was like, oh, okay. And I was like, what? <laughs> I'm allowed to say no? This is a new experience. And, yeah. So then I had... Um, I didn't ever want to go back home. And when I moved to Montana, um, pretty much realized that the only way I was going to be able to afford school was if I got my residency. Um, Otherwise, like my entire life savings that I had put together 
was going to get me through like a semester of college and then I'd be off on my own and like my mom was just like and you're gonna have to come move back in with us and I was like no hell no never <laughs> not happening um so I did I got my residency but the the big kicker there was that if you were not a full-time student you were not allowed to live in the dorms and when I moved to Montana um, the intention was to live in the dorms because I was a freshman and you were required to and yada 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 so then all these things changed they said that I'd be able to live in the dorms until like winter break so that I would have time to find housing and I didn't find housing in time so I was living out of my car and which like wasn't that different than when I was in the dorms because I was working like I was working full-time um, in retail and then I also did like 20 to 30 hours of tutoring every week while going to school I slept every other day for like five hours it was terribly unhealthy do not recommend it um, but I spent a lot of time in my car and then over winter break when there was no school there was no tutoring all I had was my main job and I had to stay there and I had to continue to try to find housing which in a college town like in the middle of the school year is difficult and so I've been sleeping in my car going to work um you know showering at the gym and things like that and then there was a guy who I worked with and he lived right behind Target which is where we worked right and um he was just like hey if you need to crash on the futon that's totally fine and I was just like are you sure you know I don't want to impose and like we all like had this gr friend group anyway and we always ended up hanging out at his house he's like no 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 like I'd rather you stay here than like sleeping in your car because I mean it's Montana in winter it gets a little chilly um and so I start off with this like just very grateful kind of approach and then like it slowly turned into him like putting the moves on me and me not reciprocating and then um him like ending up next to me while I was sleeping and um, being fondled and things like that. And then, like, eventually coming down to, a f like, fighting, arguing, and him saying things like, well, you know, I should be able to get something out of you staying here. And in my mind, like as an adult now I'm just like well that's some fucking bullshit and you like that's not how this works um and if I were 18 years old and able to say that that would have been amazing but I wasn't and so that was the first time that I really um I would say bartered my body um, all of the, like, all the stuff that happened when I was young 
was more like done to me mm-hmm. and not really there there was no like there was none of me weighing the consequences mm-hmm. um but that was probably the first time that i can cognitively say my brain was just like okay negative 20 outside i can stay warm and allow access to my body or i can face the elements and that was a decision that i never wanted to have to make (laughs) um and i don't think i should have been put in that position personally i agree um then when i was 20 i got this brilliantly amazing opportunity to study abroad in morocco and i took it because i've always wanted to travel the world and it was amazing and i got to i mean i got to spend two months in the high atlas mountains it like it was beautiful the culture is beautiful the land is beautiful it was amazing However, where we slept was, like, everyone who was on this trip, they had one room for all of us. And that was totally fine. Until one night when I woke up with our translator on top of me with his tongue down my throat. And I am still a very aggressive person. I know right now I probably seem kind of chill, but, like... I can flip a switch pretty easily and I can be very aggressive. And so I had him by the throat, um, trying to push him off of me. He complained about me hurting him. And I was like, yeah, that's the point. <laughs> like, you, you don't get to like take access to me while I'm asleep. This is not okay. And so that fight happened Um, a couple of times that one night and like nobody else woke up nobody else knew anything about it Um, it was just something that I again dealt with myself Mm -hmm. and conveniently um, this was like two weeks into our trip and so conveniently our like the second group showed up and so we had to get a second room at Vajit, so the place that we were staying. And so I moved to the other room where um, our other translation translator who was female was staying. And since um, she's a she's Muslim and female, and so like per her religion, she was not allowed to sleep in a room with other with guys. And so I was like, super cool. I'm going to go to the girls' room. This is going to be great. Tried to put it all behind me. Um, and just avoided the other guy as much as possible. There was there was a guy on our trip who was, like, a big brother to me. And, like, for us, like, we had to walk. We had to, like, hike for half an hour to get to work every day. Mm-hmm. And one day we were on that hike and he kind of pulled me off to the side and he said, Hey, you know, I've been noticing some things between, um, you and I don't even remember his name anymore. That's 
probably a good thing. <laughs> if you want, you can just call him Bob. Bob. Definitely not Bob. But <laughs> we'll call him Bob for now. And he's like, you know, he's like, I can tell it's like something happened between you and Bob. And I was, you know, so I'm expecting to, because like he had, he had stepped up as like this big brother role to me. And I was just like, okay, so I'm going to have some comfort here. And so I start opening up to him about what was happening and what had happened. And then his response was, well, I don't think you should tell Chris and Chloe, who are the people in charge, mm-hmm. because you know this is a really good opportunity for him. And, like, the second he said that, my brain was just like, I'm not, like, I can't continue this conversation. I was just like, yep, let's move on. Because, one, I was not going to tell Chris and Chloe about this because I was terribly ashamed of it. And I respected them, and I wanted them to continue to respect me. So I wasn't going to tell them, like, that I let this happen because I was still at this point where... I had the idea that I let it happen. Um, so I wasn't going to tell them anyway. I was going to avoid it and work my ass off and, you know, just forget it happened because that is how I had gotten through life. But the fact that someone who, like, showed that they cared about me previously, their reaction was that, I shouldn't talk about what happened to me because it might negatively affect the person, like the perpetrator was my first personal experience of what I now very openly refer to as rape culture, um, which, you know, there are people who will say that rape culture exists and people who say that it won't, that it doesn't. And I'm definitely on the side of like, have you looked around lately? Because it's everywhere. Um, I agree with you. We actually covered on a previous episode, a couple of previous episodes, the definition of rape. And what did you... So what... So the standard... How, the standard how did you define The it? standard definition is uh, being forced to have sex against your will. The mm-hmm. second and just as important definition is uh, no consent. So even if you're under the influence, whether it be drugs or alcohol or whatever it is, you can't give consent. So even if you're enjoying it, it doesn't matter. It's still rape. Right. Um, and then there's the third, obviously, but everyone knows that if you're not of the the age that you're allowed to have sex legally by the government, doesn't matter. It's uh, yeah. it's rape. So actually, I guess yeah. there's three um, definitions. Um, I asked because I was listening to a YouTube video slat that eventually got put into a podcast yesterday. And the title is Rape is Not Sex, because it was talking about the idea that, like, you can't have non-consensual sex, because sex, by definition, is a consensual act. I agree. And um, there's a very big difference between your body being violated by somebody else and sex. So, yeah. Anyway, so then, 
that trip continued to be uncomfortable and I did my best to avoid him as much as I could. Um, it didn't always work because I, when you're keeping secrets, um, I think, I think the hardest part about keeping secrets is how much you have to allow in order to continue to hold those secrets. Like, um, I remember one night I was, I was just like walking around in the town, which again, I'm like up in the middle of the mountains. There's like, they don't even have electricity, much less anything else. So like the only thing that could possibly get to me is like a wild dog and they stay out of town because people throw rocks at them. So, you know, I'm just like enjoying the evening and all of a sudden, like I have an arm around my neck that is like, like he's not trying to choke me, but he's not like, he's definitely like had me so I couldn't get away. And then he started telling me that he loved me and couldn't understand why I wouldn't talk to him and why I was avoiding him. And it like, I instantly went into what I've now learned is fawning. So like the overall people pleasing, like just do what they say until you can get away. And, and so, sorry, just for clarification, you're referring now to Bob, right? Bob. Yes. yes to Bob. Okay. <laughs> Um, anyway, so there was that. And so I thought that would be the last of it. Unfortunately, um, I was very eager to both travel, um, as part of this trip and also very eager to save as much money as possible because I did not have a lot of money to spare. So I ended up going like, my flight left a day after my, like, all of my professors did. And, because it was, like, $1,000 cheaper. <laughs> and so, I was left with Bob as my only way to get to the airport. And when you're in Marrakesh, <laughs> like, you I love Marrakesh, but if you've ever been there or seen it, it is busy, it is crazy, like, the driving is insane, the, like, the amount of people, and not knowing the language, and not, just, not something you want to handle without assistance, so, um, I felt lucky, because they have a law that men and women who are not married cannot share a hotel room. So I luckily did not have, like, I was just like, sweet, I have my own room. It won't be a problem. And he, and I don't know, like, whether it's my, my niceness, my fawning, whatever it is. But, you know, he said, hey, I brought you gifts, whatever. I don't even remember. But ended up in my room. And all, all that I know is that 
I, I don't know how to put this. I guess it doesn't have to be PG-13. Nope. So I essentially let him grind against me until he jizzed in his pants so that he was taken care of because he kept trying to get his pants and my pants off even though there was no consent. And so I did what I needed to do to stop it. And so, yeah, that was probably the second time where I could say, okay, I bartered my body for the next amount of safety. And so the next day, you know, I'm still fawning, I'm still smiling, I'm still being super happy about everything until he drops me off at the airport. And then I felt like I could breathe for the first time in two months. And it was very interesting um, because I, like, in high school, I, I wouldn't say I had stalkers. Maybe other people would say I had stalkers. I had friends who, like, would call me and be like, hey, why aren't you in your room? I'm looking inside your room right now, and you're not there. And I was like, I'm at a volleyball tournament? Why wouldn't you ring the doorbell? <laughs> um, like, so that had happened to me before. And I just, like, multiple times had come out of my house and, like, seen guys I know sitting in their car outside of my house and then I'd like walk up to their car and be like what you guys doing here <laughs> and they're like nothing we're just listening to music chilling and I'm like okay like chill outside my house and I didn't like didn't think of it um at this point like Facebook exists now and Bob instantly like as soon as he got back to a computer starts finding me on the internet and I Luckily, like, Facebook used to have a function where, like, you could make yourself unsearchable. And so I did that because I didn't want him to be able to find me. Then, like, a few years ago, they got rid of that feature. It was, like, five or so years ago now. And within three days of them getting rid of that feature, which was easily five years after this had happened... Um, Bob had sent me a friend request and so I was like first of all you should have found somebody else to obsess with by now and second why <laughs> just why um, so I got to block my first person that was super fun <laughs> <laughs> um, and then so my next experience was with um, a friend of mine who we had been friends since my sophomore year of high school and I was 22 um, it started with like a conversation one like Christmas break and we were hanging out and like we were like hey I always had a crush on you Ooh, I always had a crush on you too and then like the flirtation just kind of kept going and then we were talking and texting across the United States because we were at different colleges and then that summer um, we were both in town for 
Frontier Days because that's what people come to town for. And um, we like went out to a movie and we had, I don't know, had the intention of making out and maybe getting to some other things. And um, while we were getting to those other things, I realized that I didn't feel, I don't know if it was, I didn't feel safe, but I didn't like, it was like, this isn't how I want this to happen. At this point in time, I, um, I was still a virgin, I guess. I don't even, I don't like actually believe in virginity anymore, but at the time I still definitely did. And I had never had any like consensual sex with anybody and um, I had avoided anybody having any fully non-consensual sex with me. Um, funny, not funny, it's not funny, um, but side note is that a lot of the definitions of whether it's um, rape or assault or even just the definition of sex really depends on who is defining it because a lot of people only consider it sex if it's penetrative sex whereas any like any amount of intentional sexual um fondling and any of the any of that kind of stuff that's not penetrative is still very it's still very much sex. It's well, just not. I notice on the news, like they always refer to it now. They don't ever use the word rape. They always refer to it as sexual assault. Oh, this woman was sexual assaulted on a street corner, and I'm like, there's no way this guy whipped it out and just started doing this lady on the street corner in front of all these people. It must have been groping or something. That's that's what my head goes to. But yeah. Yeah. So they use sexual assault. Yeah, and but then which there's the one side that I think all sexual assaults should be very much um, treated with seriousness because whether they were able to penetrate you or not does make it doesn't make it any less traumatic. Um, but I feel like it's also it's a disservice because when most people hear sexual assault, they don't think about how much impact that has because they, they think, oh, it must have been a groping. But if you look at Brock Turner, which I like, there's a part of me that doesn't want to say his name because I don't want to give him, you know, any more fame. But I actually have he, no idea who that is. So please educate oh, me. So Brock Turner is a swimmer from Stanford who drugged and raped a woman behind a dumpster. And I believe two gentlemen found him in the act of raping her. And he, he got sentenced to six months in like a rehab ranch. And then the rest of his sentence was... Um, I don't know the correct term, but essentially dismissed because 
he was a really good swimmer and he was like he was a great athlete and a good kid and his future shouldn't be ruined because he made a mistake or as his dad put it on record his future shouldn't be ruined for 20 minutes of action mind you his action was with an unconscious woman who he drugged and forced himself upon so that is disgusting i can't believe this this guy right and yeah and it's i I mean i cannot tell you how prevalent it is for especially affluent white males especially if they're athletes if they if they have any like pull in society can i just interrupt you for one second i just have a question you're you live in the state of montana right no, I live in Wyoming now. Wyoming, okay. I have another question about Wyoming later, but we'll get to that. Yeah, in your state, okay. is there a statute of limitations on rape or sexual assault or whatever the word is that they use? Um, I don't think so. And I say that, and I don't know for certain. Um, I only know because an old teacher of mine after like after like 20 years someone brought something up against him and he got in trouble for it so um i don't think that there is a statute of limitations but there so there's the side of that that that's really great yes i think it but should be like that, side of any, that i think it should be like that everywhere right um but the unfortunate other side of that is it is very difficult to get someone tried for sexual assault if it happened yesterday, much less if it happened 20 years ago. There is another case with someone who I personally know, and um, I've read the court documents and what the rape kit said and all of the things and he still didn't get convicted. So it's unfortunately a very sad, um, our judicial system has some work to do. (laughs) I agree. We just posted the episode. That's why I was talking about rape earlier. We just posted the episode yesterday um, about the Kobe Bryant sexual assault case from 2003. And we were just going over it, and uh, my my co-host he's colorful, so um, he has some choice words for the woman because he can't fully prove that um, that it was rape. We know there was sex, but was it rape? And when you show up to take a rape kit, and you have another man's semen and pubic hair in your underwear, what does that say? Well, and I'm not complete. Like I don't know too much about the case, but one, there's a lot of things that that can say, and I usually um, I don't know if it's side with, but I usually give the benefit of doubt to the victim. Um, In cases like that, 
when there's a lot you can gain from it. Um, I would probably be a little more wary of, like, what that information is and things like that. But um, I think statistically, like, there's it's between 1% and 2% of people who have lied about any sort of sexual assault. And the other thing to consider is that whether it is assault or not is very dependent on the impact that it had on the person and less so on the intent of the perpetrator. Because most rape is not violent rape. Most rape is done by someone you know and trust. And, and that's, it doesn't matter what your age is. Um, it's usually done by a friend or a family member or a loved one. And so it's very difficult, like, to internally deal with that, much less, like, put it out, like, and shine light on it in the world. But that case is probably... I don't know. That's a, there, there's a lot. There's always a lot of angles to everything. So, sorry. Please continue with your story. Yeah. <laughs> um, which I think segues very well back <laughs> into my story. Is that um, an interesting thing? Is that my I still call him a friend, even though he's not my friend. Um, if you asked my friend Michael. If he raped me, he would say no. He would say that that never happened. And not like, like, as a, like, I never raped a girl, like, getting all defensive kind of way. But he would not have any idea that it happened. Even though I said no. Um, and I told him I was uncomfortable. And I wasn't ready to take that step. Um, and then really all I remember from that point on in the evening was him like yelling at me and accusing me. He accused me of being a churchgoer. Um, and that's why I didn't want to have sex, which I was like, no, I'm straight up heathen and still don't want to have sex. Um, but, so, so I guess that this is the harder story for me to tell because this is actually a chunk of my life that I don't remember. I remember the first part of the, like, I remember when I said no, like he pulled out a condom and I was like, Hey, I'm not ready for that. I don't want to go that far. Then I remember him yelling some things at me and me getting very, like, scared and small. Then I remember a pain in my neck. And then I remember him giving me my shorts. And everything in between there is black. And I've been through a lot of therapy. <laughs> And I would still like to keep all of that black. I don't really want to know what happened there. Um, and I don't know how much you know about disassociation, but anytime 
um, anytime like we've gone through that that memory in therapy, I and this actually happened last week. Like I disassociate really bad, and my like to this day, and this happened twelve years ago, and my brain is still like no. We don't want to know that. We don't want to feel that. And we will escape. And if you're not going to physically escape, then mentally we will remove ourselves because that's, that's what my brain did that night. I can relate Um, to what you're, what you're saying. Um, I'll just quickly, uh, when I was a child, um, there was a situation with, uh, my mother's boyfriend, my late mother's boyfriend. And, um, yeah, there are parts that I remember, but there are parts that I don't remember. And even though I went to therapy as a child, and I went to therapy until I was up till I was 16 years old, I don't have it back. But for me personally, I don't see the need. I've, I don't like, I watched my mother battle with her emotions and stuff her whole life. And the bag that she had to carry around, you know, the baggage, the the way they say that, it just kept getting heavier and heavier and heavier. I don't want to do that. So I dealt with my shit. Even though I don't remember some details, I'm okay with that. And I leave it behind. And I actually didn't speak about it until we until I did that interview that's that's coming out on March 4th. And uh, like I said, like, I, uh, I can't... Uh, I can't wait to hear about it, like, uh, people's reaction. Yeah, and I think I had a therapist at one point tell me when I first started going into this, because I told her, because I do EMDR therapy. What's that? Sorry? um, EMDR, it is eye movement something or another. Um, I'll look it up, I'll take this. (laughs) But it is, so it's a treatment for PTSD, um, and it's really cool. Like, you follow a light with your eyes, and it, it's, supposed, it's supposed to and does actually, like, it helps you rewire your brain, and it helps you rewire those memories so that they have less of a traumatic impact on you. So, like, it has dramatically reduced my, um, my flashbacks, and I, like, there are some things that I used to not be able to think about without like having a panic attack that I can now like I can remember it without having to feel it again which is just phenomenal for someone who spent the first like 30 years of her life just compiling trauma on top of trauma (laughs) so um highly recommend there's you, I mean, they don't generally just, like, let you jump into EDMR, EMDR. Um, you usually have to go through some therapy beforehand to make sure that you have the tools that you're going to need um, to cope because sometimes, because you're, I mean, you're diving into your traumatic memories, so you have to have those coping skills, like, well-practiced so that you don't, so you're not fucking yourself up more, essentially. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, and it's, it was very interesting. And so that was, like, that was me up until 22. Um, when I was about 23, 24, 
So I moved back home and I, like, I still didn't know what was wrong with me, right? Um, with that last story, I convinced myself that I just, um, and again, this, I would say would go back into rape culture is I convinced myself that I was just one of those girls that, you know, said she wanted something, changed her mind and then didn't like the experience. So I just had to put up with that. Um, I didn't start calling that rape until I started going to therapy when it took weeks of my therapist reminding me that the definition of rape is somebody like having non-consensual intercourse with you and you know pointing out like having me say like like did you consent to this and me saying well no I said no multiple times she's like then you didn't like this wasn't your fault you didn't do this and it took a very long time for me to even accept that it had happened to me mm-hmm. um but the interesting thing for me was when I started therapy I, like, first of all, got diagnosed with PTSD, um, which there's, I'm a firm, so I'm a firm believer in diagnoses, and I say this because knowing what is going on with you, mentally, physically, whatever, doesn't stop it from happening but it gives you the ability to like come up with a plan of action. Mm-hmm. So when I found out that like I had night terrors, cause I, I mean, I was mostly an insomniac because when I did sleep, I had nightmares like all the time. Um, I had reoccurring nightmares for like 15 years, the same one over and over and over again. Um, And then just nightmares that were just, like, terrifying, but I didn't, like, there wasn't any solid information in it. It was just fear. And so I spent, I mean, if I'm 23 at the time, at least a good solid 15 years um, of, you know, I guess that would be almost actually 19 years um, of not sleeping, of having flashbacks about things that I don't even understand, having panic attacks, having all of these things, and then finally having a diagnosis that says all of these things that are happening are because of trauma that you faced and there's a way to help with it. Like that is that is where I think that a diagnosis is very helpful because it doesn't, it doesn't give you the ability to like be cured, but it gives you a pathway to learn how to heal. And I think that's very important. And so, um, when we first, talked um you had said that you reached out to me for my story about domestic violence 
So you've now gotten the prequel. <laughs> um, when I was 24, I had just moved back to my hometown and I had um, my, my best friend had just moved back and this other guy that we were friends with in high school had just moved back as well. And so we hung out a bunch. Um, I never had an interest in, um, we'll call him gentleman number two. Okay. Um, my best friend was like, he was my first love. I still like was pining for him. There was all sorts of things there. Um, had no romantic interest in the other guy. Turns out now that other guy is my ex-husband. Um, <laughs> so things changed and things changed very rapidly. Um, what I know now is, you know, what people would call a red flag. Um, when I was 24 and had never felt like I had been in any sort of stable relationship before, um, felt like a godsend and we hung out one night and uh we're kind of talking just like as friends and within a week we were dating um and within a month we were in, we were engaged and six months later we were married um then had a honeymoon baby so nine months after that we had our first kid um like so in just over a year's time we went from like absolutely no real relation to one another to all of the things you know <laughs> marriage kid working on finding a house things like that and the first year um in my my mindset then was really good. Um, he was the first person that I had consensual sex with. Um, and so I got to experience that for the first time, um, which was nice, I guess. <laughs> I'd say. Um, but we, looking back on it now, um, I look at what I know I wanted and what I know I was okay with and what I wasn't okay with mm -hmm. and how much of what I did or allowed, um, especially in a sexual manner happened because I didn't feel like I had a choice. Um. It wasn't, like, I never considered what I actually found pleasurable um, and just did whatever was asked of me or told of me to make the other person happy. Uh, because that's not just how I was raised, like, in my household, but just that is how the world raised me. I didn't have any other experiences. So... Didn't think twice about it, really. Um, my 
right around the time that, well, right before, I guess, my second son was conceived, um, my ex-husband, he was, I guess, he was, so he was in control. Um, the reason we had a, um, a honeymoon baby in the first place was because he threw away my birth control um, because he decided he wanted kids. And I, like, convinced myself, I was like, you know, on average, it takes people at least six months to conceive. That should be plenty of time, you know, totally forgetting that I come from a long line of fertile myrtles. So, didn't, <laughs> didn't take six months. <laughs> um, but, like, looking back on that and knowing that it was, it was his choice and his choice alone because he's the one who took away my ability to prevent that. Um, and then same kind of thing. He decided he wanted a second kid and I told him that I wasn't ready. Like I wanted, I wanted to feel like my body was mine again before making another human being because making a human being takes a lot out of you. <laughs> and also, isn't there, like, there's, like, a period of time, it's like uh, the baby moon, it's like, you know, you only have, you, you're you you're so wrapped up in the first baby, you couldn't possibly split yourself for another. Well, mine was, I was nursing, and I wanted to nurse for a full year, but I didn't want to be pregnant and nursing because both things take a lot out of you um and i still wanted to try to feel like my own human being and not just i don't know a pod to make other people <laughs> um so i got like two months i got like two months not nursing before our second son was conceived a couple months into that pregnancy my husband was, he got really stressed and he was like, I don't think, I don't think that like we can handle this. And I was like, what are you talking about? He was just like a second kid. That's a lot. And I was like, I, I know like, that's why I didn't want to do it right away. And so he starts like freaking out and, um, he has, or had, I guess, really bad coping mechanisms. Um, he was raised by an alcoholic mother, um, no father in the picture. He had a lot of his own issues, but he didn't deal with any of his issues. So his response to all of this was, you know, taking his, grandma's Vicodin and someone at his work had gotten like oral surgery and had leftover pills that he bought off of them and just a lot of so a lot of prescriptions prescription drugs um and alcohol and things like that and for the most part you wouldn't be able to tell that like he wasn't someone who got 
super inebriated, like, on a nightly basis. Mm-hmm. But he would go out with his friends and leave me with the baby and or babies when there was two of them. Um, and, like, I was just in charge of the household and the children and then making sure he got up for work and making sure I got to work and making sure all of the bills were paid because he would spend all of the money he earned. And so all of my money had to cover all of the bills. Um, and it was just very stressful. And then he, so right around the time that our second son was born, he started getting really suicidal and would say things like you and the kids are my only reason to live. Like you can't leave me. Um, I, you know, I can't live without you. I need you, blah, 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 blah. And I, first of all, like the other traumatic thing about my life is I have lost 17 friends to suicide. So it is, Like, when people say suicide, I am, like, I'm the person who will be on the phone with you all night. I will show up at your house. I will do whatever it takes. Um, And at the time, I couldn't tell the difference of, like, is he suicidal or is he manipulating me? And um, I can honestly say, not that this is a great thing, but that he was suicidal. Um, he wasn't like just saying it to keep me around. Um, but that was kind of the start of things. He would talk down to me a lot. Um, like he always told me that my job wasn't a real job because they didn't have benefits. And even though I made more money than him, and I'm the one who paid all the bills and I took care of the kids. Like he would just tell me how, like how it didn't mean anything and how it was less than, and which was very hard for me because I cared a lot about my job. And there was just like, it's just hard to explain because there was just like tiny little things that he did over and over and over again that would just chip away at, my ability to exist and so I first of all started working a lot more because I felt like every time I was home I was walking on eggshells like I couldn't say what I wanted to because he could get angry or he could get um well violent in so in our house he never put his hands on me um but he had a he had a temper and he would punch holes in walls and he would throw things across the room and break them um and I told myself over and over and over again and I think I say this multiple times in my books but if it's ever me or the kids we have to leave and I would tell myself that Um, one of my, like, one of the moments where I have the most shame as a mother is 
there was one time he lost his temper and slapped my oldest son. Um, and I justified it. Like, I was just like, he just slapped him once and then he realized that it was wrong and he went and took care of himself. Like, everything is okay. And afterwards, like, my brain saying, no, you said if it's ever you or the kids, you have to leave. And then, you know, that other voice would pop up in my head and be like, but, it, but you know, he's hurting. He's got, like, this all the stuff going on for him. And so that's one of my greatest shames as a mother is that I let my children stay in that situation when I knew I shouldn't have because I, because I was stuck. Um, and, and that's, I think the biggest, my greatest shame in having been in that particular abusive relationship mm -hmm. like I know I can I can quantify all of the abuse that I faced throughout my life and why my brain has been trained to stay but it does not negate the shame that I have felt in staying when there was a part of me that knew I shouldn't be there but there was a greater part of me that couldn't figure out how to leave um even to the point so we were my my youngest son was a year old or about to be a year old and i um we had a our friends were in town and there was a concert down in Colorado that we wanted to see. And, um, you know, I was just like, I really want to do this. Like, I know you have to work the next day, but we can make it happen. Like, we can make it work. I'll drive so you can sleep. Like, we can get a hotel room so that we don't have to drive all night. Like, we have options. And so we figured out this whole plan. We went to the concert. We're having this grand old time. Um... And he wants to leave early, which, side note, I was pissed off about because I wanted to see Flogging Molly at Red Rocks. Who is that? <laughs> is that the... Flogging Molly? Never heard of him. I'm, okay, from, I'm so, from Canada. I'm from Canada. Oh, okay, well, okay. But, so they're, a, um, they're an Irish punk rock band. Uh, so, um, yeah, I don't know. I like punk rock, but, and Red Rocks is like, it's a natural amphitheater up in the mountains that has just like beautiful red rocks, red stone. Um, and so they have this whole like stage and everything built into this natural amphitheater. It's amazing. Anyway. We That's have, a side we, note. We, we have something like that up here uh, at Ontario. It's called Ontario Place. We have, it used to be called the Molson Amphitheater, but now, you know, Budweiser uh, uh, bought the naming rights. So now it's called the Budweiser Stage, but it's still the same shit. Um, yeah. I haven't been there since I was a kid. But anyway, sorry, go on. Um, but yeah, so this, this night, like, I... Thing, things were kind of rocky with us, right? Like, 
he was losing his temper more and more. I was not feeling very secure. And I was like, you know what we need? We need a night away. We need a night away from the kids. We need a night to be adults. Like we hadn't been alone together in a year since our second son was born. And so I was like, this is going to be fantastic. Um, and so before I get into this next piece, part of PTSD is hypervigilance. Um, for me, that has often looked like my brain, like you, have you, you've read like choose your own adventure books? Yes. So my brain is like perpetually a choose your own adventure, choose your own adventure book. So every time I like, like literally every move I make in life, my brain is like, has like four or five options of like what this could lead to. Like if you go right or left and like where that's going to lead, where that's going to lead. And it goes like a couple pages in, you know, cause you didn't just like flip to the, I don't know. I don't know about you. I didn't flip one page and go, oh, it says to go to page 87. I'm going to go there. I was like, I'm going to go to 87 and then 63 and then, you know, and look through the book to see what direction I really wanted to go. What I used to do is oh. I chose, but then after I read the first page, if I didn't like it, I went back. Oh, see, that's, <laughs> I ended up, I feel like every Choose Your Own Adventure book I actually read, I read the entire book. I made sure that I read every possible story in that book. Um, cause that's just the kind of kid I was. But anyway, to this story is that I very much like my mind is still that way. And so no matter what is happening, my brain is just like, okay, choice one or two, this is what is possible here. This is what is possible here. And it's just like, like at the speed of light, literally at the speed of light, because that's how fast your brain moves. But um, does it move at the speed of light? Speed of electricity? Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so this comes into play because I am expecting that there's going to be some sort of romantic evening, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm preparing for that. And before I know it, I have a belt around my neck. Um, and as I've already told you, I'm a bit aggressive. Um, the nice way to put it is feisty. I can be a bit feisty. And so that part of my brain initially went, what the fuck? This is not okay. You need to say no. And my brain went into, this is what happens when you say no. And it went no, and then it went black. And there was nothing after no. I was like, okay, what are, what are my other options, brain? It was just like, okay, like, play along for a second, see where this goes. Okay, you feel ashamed, you feel disgusting, like, maybe there's, maybe there's another opportunity to stop this action. I was like, okay, well, there's still an outcome on that one that isn't just blackness. We should take that route. So, didn't fight. Then, um... Like, he starts pulling me around, and not not in a playful manner. Um, and I'm, I'm uncomfortable, and I am scared, and I'm fucking pissed off, because, like, you, 
like you are my husband you are supposed to be the person who cares about me more than anybody else on this fucking planet why the hell are you treating me like this um and so throughout that evening of the various things that he did my brain would continuously go through those two options and it was okay here's an opportunity to break free what happens when you break free and like the furthest it ever got to was okay it ends up in an altercation and then it goes black and then the other option was always you like again you feel ashamed you feel disgusting you feel like used and abused and all of that but like this path is longer this path continues on and so throughout the evening that kept happening over and over and over again um and when i first told this story to my therapist i like i told it just like this i was just like and that's like that was how i made my decision of like continuing to let this happen to me because like i can't explain it but every time my mind was like your option is to fight and then it goes black all i could think about was that i was not going to survive that situation um and the other shitty part about this whole thing is that on our drive back to our house the next morning we started talking about adopting a dog and everything was just back to normal like the night before the names he called me <laughs> the things he did to me like he had me hanging well, not hanging. He had me completely naked on the balcony of a hotel room with the belt still around my neck, having half of my body over the side of it where I'm looking down eight stories onto train tracks where if I fall, no one will know. Like, it's not the front of the building. No one, no one's going to, like some poor guy would find my naked carcass the next time that they're on those tracks, but they don't look like they're, you know, used often. So it might be a minute. Um, and like, it was terrifying. And so that it was probably the apex of me bartering my body to stay alive. Because I, like, 100%, like, did not consent, but allowed those things to happen to me because it was the only way that I could find a way to still be alive the next day. Um, and it, and then we just went back to normal. Like, life just continued on and there was no talk of what had happened there was no apology like hey I shouldn't have treated you that way <laughs> um I just went back to living 
life. And again, a fair amount of shame because I told, I told myself, if it's ever me or the kids, I had to leave. And I, there was a night where I was legitimately afraid that my husband would kill me and I stayed. <laughs> um, and I, like, I look back and I don't, I can't even remember why. Like, I can say, you know, I was afraid for his well-being because he was suicidal. Um, I could say I was afraid of our well-being because what if, you know, I set him off and didn't get away. I was afraid that my family would like turn their backs on me and just be ashamed to even have anything to do with me. Um, I was afraid of a lot of things that made it so that I just did whatever it took for me to be alive the next day. And to do that, I became smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, and then right around Christmas that year, my depression got really, really bad. And I, so I was also, um, well, raised in a household with an alcoholic. I don't know that I can say that I was raised by the alcoholic because he didn't do any of the raising per se. Um, but I've always been very cautious with alcohol. I have very addictive tendencies, um, which on an interesting note, there's a gentleman named, um, can I pronounce his name? I think it's Gabber Monte, something like that, Monte. But he studies trauma um, and trauma's relation to substance abuse because his theory is that all substance abuse comes from trauma. It comes from essentially however you're trying to get away from whatever has already impacted you. So that's where my addictive tendencies came from. Um, but we had some friends over one night and I, my friend asked, like, what kind of alcohol we wanted, and I said I didn't want any because I knew I was depressed, and I have a general rule that I don't drink if I feel like I need a drink, and I desperately needed a drink, and so I didn't want to have any alcohol around me. My friend did not listen, and he brought me some Jameson, because um, I'm a big whiskey girl and Jameson is like the easy one um, and I drank a lot that night and I um, eventually needed to go to sleep and was not coherent enough to get myself there so my husband walked me downstairs to our bedroom and I had the intention of going to sleep and he had the intention of having sex. Um, and no matter how much I 
told him to stop or said no or pushed him off of me, I was very, very inebriated and I was not able to stop him. Um, and so I can say that I have been raped three times in my life and two of those times were by my husband. And oftentimes, even so last summer, I had a friend of mine, um, we were talking about trauma because I talk about that a lot. <laughs> and um, I said that I had been raped by my husband and he was like, well, how's that even possible? I was like, well, <laughs> let me tell you. And I told him the hotel story very briefly and he was like, oh, okay. Like, like it had to be justified that I was put in a dangerous situation in order for somebody to believe me that my husband raped me. Um, because we still live very much in a society that thinks that if you are in a relationship, if you are especially in a marriage, that your partner has a right to you, whether you want them to or not. It's time to dismantle uh, that. Well, yeah, we, we need to dismantle that. Because at no point, at no point, no matter what is happening, you are, you, you are not the property of anybody else. And um, you should always have choice in what you're doing. So a few weeks after that happened, I told my husband, I was like, you know, if things don't change we're going to end up in divorce. And that was very hard for me. I remember before we got married, I told him that I was, now mind you, I was raised by a very, like in a very strict Catholic household. And I am a self-proclaimed heathen, but I was still very much raised with the idea that like, when you marry, it is for life. And you, you know, you work through your problems and you figure it out. Um, this was also before I learned, like, how fully fucked up my family was and, like, how many mistresses my super Catholic grandfather had. And, um, yeah, all those things that, you know, they talk about, how people's love stories back in the day were so beautiful and like why can't we love like that anymore and it's like well because now people are held accountable for if they like go outside of the marriage and now it's no longer just seen as the normal thing that men are allowed to do and I say men like now so statistically just so you know 50% of women um, cheat in a marriage and 60% of men will cheat in a marriage. I think those are American statistics specifically, but like in the last, like the statistics for women are continually going up. So 
like women are cheating as much as men are like almost cheating as much as men now. Well, it's funny you should mention that because I actually have my own story, but I'm I'm doing a, a second interview with the same lady, so I'm I'm gonna save that story for that interview. But yeah, like I. I completely agree there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and then we spent the next six months every time. So like within a week, he was like, well, then we should get divorced. And then I was distraught um, because that wasn't the goal. The goal was to fix things. Um, and then, you know, within... 12 hours he was like that was a rash decision we shouldn't do that we should work this out and then a week later he was like we should get divorced and then um three days later he was like no 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 we shouldn't do that and then it just went back and forth and every time he would get mad at me um that's what he would say well we should just be divorced we should just stop being together and it got very hard um and then there was some point in the summer, like one day he was like, well, if we're going to get divorced, I don't want to take this new job. I was like, I thought like, I thought things were going better. I had finally convinced him to go to marriage counseling. When we went to marriage counseling, the counselor said that she would not counsel the two of us unless he had a separate counselor because he was in a suicidal crisis. Um, so we decided that him having his own counselor or own therapist was more important because uh, he needed to figure out how to stay alive. Um, and so we didn't have we didn't go into marriage counseling. Um, and we were just focusing on him. And then he had his safety plan and all sorts of things put in place. Um, and then this day came and he said, you know, that essentially again said we should get a divorce. And I was tired. I think that's the only way to describe it is I was just tired. I was tired of the back and forth. And so I said, you know what, with like, I will let you make the decision on whether or not we stay together or get divorced. But when you make that decision, it will be the final decision. There will no will not be any more back and forth. Like, take as much time as you need. Like, if you need a day, a week, a month, a year, like, take what you need. You can make the final decision. And within, like, two minutes, he was like, okay, we'll get divorced. And then he, like, spent a bunch of time with his friends drinking heavily and not coming home and being out with other women and things like that. Um, I ended up calling like all of our mutual friends and I was like, okay, he won't talk to me. Um, but I know that he's drinking excessively. Um, just so you know, like he is like, he's on suicide watch on a daily basis. So like he's got a safety plan. He's got all of these things that are supposed to be happening so I know he doesn't want you guys knowing about it, but I'm going to tell you because at the end of the day, whether he and I have a relationship or not, he is still the father to my children. And I don't have it in me to explain to my sons, like why their dad's not alive anymore. So I was just like very much trying to keep him alive at all costs. 
Um, and it was one of the more difficult parts of our relationship, which is kind of sad to say that like the scary parts weren't the hardest part. Um, but that like having absolutely no control over whether or not like he stayed alive if that if he did something to hurt himself or others um it was very difficult and when we finally did get divorced um I put like in our divorce decree I put in there that he needed to stay in therapy because like if he wanted to have the kids with him mm-hmm. because I, I looking out for the well-being of my children I wanted them to make sure that they knew knew their dad and had a relationship with him but if he was not in a stable place I needed to not put them in danger and so he agreed to that and we kind of just like continued on um and like i am happy to say so one he got through his healing and he's not through his healing journey but he got to put more time and effort towards his healing journey at a faster pace than i did because he did not have the burden of parenthood and responsibility because when we divorced, he essentially became a single man again and would visit his kids on occasion, but um, did not have the responsibility of the day-to-day. And so there was at one point some resentment for that because I was like, this is bullshit that you got to heal faster than me because you started way after me. It's just not fair. Um, But I remember the day that he came and had like a really heavy conversation with me and told me that he was diagnosed with PTSD. And my legitimate response was no shit. Like literally told you that for years, bro. (laughs) And you know, and then the apologies started the, um, you know, I can't, like, I can't take back the things that I did and the things that I did to you and, like, all of what I put you through. And on the bright side, like, I had been through that internal struggle myself. So I kind of knew where he was coming from. And, like, I mean, and I think part of that is why I stayed is because. I knew what he was struggling with and I wouldn't want somebody to abandon me because I struggled. Um, And so I felt like I couldn't abandon him either. But I eventually did get to the point where I had to put myself and my kids first. And so um, I him leaving me was the best thing that ever happened to me. (laughs) Um, And he left just long enough, like within a week he was back saying that he didn't want to do this. And I was like, no, 
I said final decision, it is final decision, and I was able to stand my ground for the first time, and it worked. Um, and it has turned out much better for all of us. We have that in common. Um, <laughs> I'm on my second marriage as well, and, and the first one left, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah, oftentimes, I mean... I'm not like a full-on everything happens for a reason kind of person, but there's a lot. I do believe that when things do happen, um, opportunities arise for better. So I can, and so this is, so the other hard part, well, two other hard parts about this, in our divorce, like, we had been friends since high school, and most of our mutual friends stopped being friends with me. Like, to them, I was this evil person who broke his heart and didn't love him enough and all sorts of things. Um, and so I lost a lot of my, like, my people, and... I didn't talk to anybody about it outside of a therapist. So none of my, um, none of my close friends knew the only two people who really knew anything were two older women that I worked with at my job. Mm -hmm. And they were the ones who throughout, like I would tell them stories and they would say, you're in an abusive relationship. And I'd be like, no, 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 I'm not. You don't understand. Like, he was just having a bad day because both of them, their first marriages were abusive. And for two, three years, they told me, like, your marriage is abusive. And I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> you don't understand. And then on the op like on the other side, I was like, oh, that's, that's the cycle they were talking about that I just perpetually went through over and over and over again in being victimized and then forgiving and being victimized and forgiving and, like, them coming back and be like, no, I'm going to change, I'm going to be better. Um, and so, I don't know, it's just so common. Um, I... So the two things that I really want to say to my story that I think are very imperative. Have you seen Made on Netflix? Yes, I have. I actually love that show. It was amazing. I so I was in my feels so much. The only thing that upset me is that you don't really get an opportunity to see her happy. I understand the struggle is what sells the show, but yeah. But where's the payoff? Why don't we get to see her be happy? I love that show. I, I, I hope there's another season. There probably isn't, but... Yeah, because I think it was just written off of the book, and I think they stayed really true to there's the book. There's a book? Yeah. I have to read so this it, book. It's a book by... Because it's a true story. That is, like, it is written by that woman who... That, like, that is her story. I'm going to look that up. I, I have to read this book. Um, but yeah, I want, like, the, the quote in that show that hit me the hardest was 
when the one woman said, before they bite, they bark. And I think when it comes to domestic violence, violence, domestic abuse, I mean, like we kind of talked about earlier with sexual assault, if you call it sexual assault, it doesn't sound as bad. It doesn't hurt as bad to hear it. Like, if it happens to you, you know how much it hurts. Mm -hmm. But when you're trying to tell somebody what happened to you, like, sexual assault does not sound as bad as rape. And we live in this world where everyone's just like, well, I don't have it as bad as some other people. Like, I know I even said that earlier in this conversation. Like, I know that, like, there were some times that my body was handled, but it was not as bad as other people have had it. And I think what we need as a society is to let, first of all, let the pain in. <laughs> like, it, let yourself acknowledge that it's painful and that it's not okay. Um, it doesn't matter if it is, you know, your significant other calling you names that you don't want to be called or if it is them throwing you down a flight of stairs. Both of those things are domestic abuse. And both of those things deserve to be treated as if you are in an abusive relationship. Both of those things, you deserve to be away from both of those things. It doesn't have, you don't have to let it get to the point of people getting injured or murdered in order for it to be bad enough to be considered abuse. And I think that's, that's where that show really like got to me because like in that in the first episode I think when she goes to um whatever the the state department people and they're like well we can get you in um a domestic violence shelter and she was like and say what that he didn't hit me because it is it's very it's difficult to get services and it's difficult to find safety if you haven't been hit yet and like we've dealt with this this last year with my dad and my my parents divorce and they're like well do you have a restraining order i'm like no we can't get a restraining order until he injures us like we don't want him to injure us we want him to stay away from us but and yeah they the, won't I understand what you mean. The onus is on you to prove that it happened. In Canada, if we want a restraining order, the onus is on us to prove that we need it, which I think is complete horseshit. Right. It's, but, like, you can't, like, they don't, they, they don't consider it proof unless you have physical evidence of harm. I'm like, okay, so... X amount of years of psychological damage isn't enough. Like, X amount of years of substance abuse in front of children isn't enough. Like, when... If if the only line they're not allowed to cross is beating you up, 
then they're going to have to cross that line before anybody does anything about it. And people wonder why people don't leave abusive relationships. Because nobody's listening. No one's saying, like, it's just, oh, it makes me want to scream. It's time, scream. it's time to dismantle that as well. Uh, yeah. On my podcast, we actually have a hashtag. We have two hashtags, uh, specifically because the miniseries covers... Uh, the sensitive subject of suicide and it's mostly younger people like youths uh, we have a hashtag I didn't create either one of these but I'm using them uh, the first one is hashtag every child matters and the second hashtag is uh, hashtag time to push back we push back like I told you before against governments and schools and and all the other authorities that are quote in charge um, yeah. I, I loved your story uh you probably have a happy ending. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I feel pretty happy. <laughs> That's good. I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad, you know, um, it sucks that, um, people have to go through stuff like this. But the important part I think is, is that we come out the other side. We don't, uh, we don't give in. We don't give up. We stand up for what is right, and we stand up for ourselves and for the people that we love, and we try to make a difference. I, I assume that's what you're doing with your your podcast. Do you want to quickly um, tell us about your podcast? So I can. I'm gonna do my podcast and my book if you'll allow. Please, yes, yes. So please my, go ahead. My podcast is Common Humanity. And it is all about having real human conversation. Um, I truly believe that if we, um, when you can find people who have similar experiences as you, um, and you listen to their stories, even if you don't know them personally, it helps you feel less alone. Um, and one of the things in healing trauma is, not feeling alone and not feeling like you're the only person with that same burden. Um, and so I am just, I am out here having conversations and sometimes we haven't had a lot of like heavy hitting conversations yet, but, um, I am here just have to have conversations with people for whatever they want to talk about, whatever their passion is, whatever like thing that is just like ticking in their brain that day. And then we go into a couple of like random questions at the end. Um, and it's just about finding our common humanity, which is actually a defined thing as well, which is essentially that as a human, we all have similar joy, but we also have similar pain and similar struggles. And when we come together and acknowledge those struggles, and that joy, that is what common humanity is, is accepting that we all go through a lot of the same shit. And if we come together, we can heal and we can be a better humanity, honestly. That's amazing. And uh, <laughs> where, where can people find your podcast? Um, so it is on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts are the... Or if you go like straight to Anchor, you can do it on there too. Um, you can also find it, it's linked on my Facebook page under CS Phoenix, um, which is also where you could find just like fun stuff that I do, but also my book. 
um, my first book of a three-part poetry series about my journey through trauma and healing um, just got published at the beginning of the month and it is again on those very same themes of I was able to heal a lot by hearing other people's stories and realizing that I was not alone and so I finally decided to put my story out there in the form of poetry because that's what I do <laughs> and um, just trying to help people realize that they they are not the only ones that struggle um, my first book the themes are very much um, disorder eating body dysmorphia suicidal ideology and self-harm um, second book is all about like the domestic abuse the emotional abuse all of that fun stuff and then the third book is entirely sexual abuse because that had a very large mark on my life so i just have a couple of quick questions before we end i have answers um i'm curious about how you write your book so for me, I'm a writer as well. I, I have a script that I'm actually working on and hoping to shoot my own movie and put it in some film festivals. But I, I, I'm also writing a book, and I'm curious if you write the same way I write. So I wrote the final chapter first, and I worked backwards. So I write novels different than I write poetry. My poetry is like, hey, whatever time of day it is, my brain is thinking this thing, and I have to, like, I literally started just putting it in a document on my phone because. And when I'm driving and I have a poem coming out, I like push the talking button and then I go through and disassemble all of my braiding into that like one run on sentence that goes into the phone. Um, I am also working on a novel. I know this sounds surprising, but it's also trauma based <laughs> and about healing. So um, I, I'm very much like I have, like the overarching, I want what the story means and kind of how to, like, I know the main parts. I know, like, who the main characters are. I know what big things need to happen to get it to the ending that I want. And then while I write, I go with the flow. Like, in writing this one, I, like, there are characters that came out as I was writing, that I had no intention, like absolutely no intention of having in there, but they have become like imperative to the storyline, but they weren't the main characters. So it didn't matter when I was like outlining it. Um, so for me, it's very, um, in a NaNoWriMo term, panstery. It just, by, by the seat of my pants is how I write. That's amazing. <laughs> and then I edit. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, send me the links for your book and your podcast, and I'll put them in my show notes. Um, the last question I had, it's, it's off topic, but I have to ask. You live in the state of Wyoming. Do you live in Cody, Wyoming? No, I are live in Cheyenne, but Cody is beautiful. So there is a very famous person that lives in Coyote, Cody, Wyoming. I'm just wondering... Uh, um, Eric Bischoff. Do you know who that is? No. 
He used to run WCW, and now he lives in Cody, Wyoming, and he's probably the most famous person that lives there. And uh, I, I've always wanted to go to Wyoming for that reason, just to see where he lives. Really? So Harrison Ford lives up by Jackson, and he has numerous times, and this was like 20 years ago, but flown his helicopter and like saved people off of the mountains that got stranded up there because Harrison Ford... Um, is like a real life Indiana Jones. I know that's not what Indiana Jones did, but you know, the whole action thing. Um, Kanye West bought a ranch and is now selling his ranch up in Jackson. So there's a lot of famous people who live, especially Northern Wyoming. Cause that's where like they can have all the space in the world. Uh, a lot of open ground. Yes. Well, before I go, I just want to let you know that um, if you ever need a guest for a podcast, you can sign me up, talk yeah. about anything you want. We'll talk about me. Hell. Um, if you have the time sometime in the next I'm not sure if it's going to be next three months or whatever I am going to be doing an episode on Gabby Petito and because you live in Wyoming I'd be interested in your opinion even if it's just a short 10 minute thing I'd I'd love to pick your brain about that but it's been so great having you on uh guys this is CS Phoenix. She runs the uh, Common Humanity podcast. Guys, check her out. You guys have heard her story. It's amazing. And um, I, I can't wait to hear nothing but good things. Can I add one more thing? Sure. That you can potentially cut back in because I had a second point. So there's the we definitely need to focus more on like actually paying attention to all levels of domestic violence um but one thing especially to the accountability side of things that i do want to touch on is and i kind of alluded to it but my ex-husband has consistently been in therapy he has consistently done the work to heal himself and now like he doesn't have these issues anymore so um one of the things that I do want to get across to people is that you can, like, you can heal because a lot of times those of us who have been traumatized unintentionally traumatize others. So knowing that it is possible for you as an individual to also um, get better and you don't have to be defined one by the things you have done or two by the things that you have allowed in your life um we we can all get better we can all grow and we can all heal that was that's where i feel like the accountability part does need to come in but you have to do the work i agree completely and that's the best thing i think to end this so thank you very very much for taking the time to uh talk to a total stranger but thank you so much (laughs) thank you for having me it was lovely and i look forward to having you on my show